0: Open your Bibles this morning to John's Gospel again, chapter 6. John's Gospel in the sixth chapter. We're going to look this morning with the Lord's help at verses 52 to 59. The Word of God reads continuing on in this great scene. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up, On the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, Lord, we come to your word, this pivotal point in the service where our hearts desire to hear from you. Not a man, not the thoughts of man, but the thoughts of God as have been given by your spirit and preserved for your glory and our good. So, Father, I do ask as a servant and under shepherd to you that you would be the one speaking and that your words would be clear that Christ would be seen and Christ alone would be seen and heard this morning. Draw us from the far places that our hearts and the world would take us and cause us to come to Christ, to sit at his feet and to learn from him. Pray all of these things for his sake. Amen. It's a winsome thought, and I would say it's a popular thought to think of and even aspire to be like Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful sentiment? Isn't that a beautiful thought to wake up every morning and say to ourselves, I desire to be like Jesus? And that is a right thought. It's a good thought. It's, it is appropriate and right. For every believer who is found in Christ to desire to live like Christ. And even the world around us today, they would tell you, it is a noble thing to aspire to be like Jesus. And as best they understand him, that statement is true. At least the Jesus who is meek and gentle and humble. The Jesus who is seen in so many portraits calling the little children to himself, which he did. The Jesus who arrived at Bethany and wept because his dear friend Lazarus had died. Everyone from the believer to the casual observer, desires to be like this Jesus. How grand the world would be, they think, if people would just reform themselves morally and be kind like Jesus is kind. There's so much more to Jesus. In fact, the majority of Jesus, in his life and his example, that seriously challenges us As to whether or not we really live like Him, or even want to live like Him, when we realize what is involved. And the text before us this morning is one such account in Jesus' life. You see, what we find in John chapter 6 verses 52 to 59 is this, that Jesus is a man not only of gentleness and meekness and humility and kindness, and He certainly was. Jesus is also a man of controversy. And not only did he not seek to avoid it, there are times when Jesus intentionally sought to deepen the controversy. Now tell that to the average person on the street today. Tell that to the average even churchgoer and see what kind of response you get. In fact, some of you probably heard that and thought, wait, whoa, that's different That's not how we often think of Jesus, but the text before us this morning bears this out that Jesus at times, not only did he seek to not avoid controversy, he actually deepened the controversy, but he did not do so out of rancor or to be shocking. He did so because it was necessary to tell the truth, truth that he will tell us in A few chapters hence, in John chapter 10, the truth that sets you free. Though it offends and though it may cause controversy at times, it is what is necessary and needful, not only for these people to hear, but it's necessary for you to hear. It's necessary for me to hear these truths. And so in our passage before us this morning, Jesus is not flipping the tables as he would do in the temple when he went in to cleanse it. But he is confounding the minds of his opponents as this next verbal exchange opens. Look at your Bibles this morning. Jesus has preached the truth. He has said, I am the bread of life. And unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will die. It's no better for you to receive me on some other grounds than it was for your fathers to eat the manna in the wilderness. The results will be the same. You will die. And you will die in your sins. Contemporary missiologists, those concerned with reaching people groups, might rebuke Jesus upon reading this. And indeed, some do rebuke Jesus for not spending more time trying to find common ground with these pious, religious, and yes, even prideful Jewish people. Why didn't Jesus try to find the common ground? He could have won them all had he just, you know, adapted his tactics and been a little less forthright. Homileticians, those concerned with The smoothness and the efficacy of communication might rebuke Jesus for not trying to speak in the vernacular and in ways that were, shall we say, more accessible and understandable to these people. Why did Jesus have to use the metaphor of flesh and blood? Didn't he know what that was going to do to their minds? Rather, Jesus doubles down. And some of you have probably looked at the text this morning and said, man, that sounds almost verbatim to what he said last week. And it's true. But if Jesus feels it necessary to double down and repeat himself, then certainly we are not above him to say, you know, let's just rush through this and pretend like you only said it once. There's a reason Jesus does what he does, and it is for the good of the hearer, and it is for his glory as he proclaims perfect and pure truth. And let me just remind you again, this is a good opportunity. The only perfect part of any worship service is when Scripture is read. Everything else is tinged with our own imperfections. As much as we might wish to correct those and would if we knew what they were, God's word is perfect in every word and in every line. Jesus delivers this perfectly inspired word as God himself. And I want you to see, first of all, this morning that there is a necessity for Jesus to speak truth in spite of cultural norms. You see, Jesus does know. Jesus is the one who wrote the law. Jesus is fully aware of what is contained in the law. And he is aware then of what they hear when he speaks. And so verse 52 is no surprise to Jesus. The Jews begin to argue with one another saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? What do you think we are? Cannibals? Jesus doesn't run from the seeming contradiction for them. He doesn't seek to make them come from God. No, no, I didn't really mean that. I didn't really mean that. Jesus doubles down. Jesus moves forward. Jesus continues to say what needs to be said. In spite of cultural norms, there is a necessity to always speak truth. We live in a day and in an age where, where Christianity, Biblical Christianity, there is demand for us to water it down. Use words that are not offensive. Don't say things that trigger. But if they're God's words, you and I don't have a choice. We must say what God has said. We can do it with a smile on our face and love in our hearts, but we must be Honest Jesus is, even though the cultural norms are completely against such honesty. If you only see Jesus as a peacemaker who only ever avoided potential strife, passages like this will offend you. They will cause you to doubt your faith, they will cause you to question the Bible. But we shouldn't. As verse 52 opens, we find a great escalation. In fact, go back to verse 41, if you would, because this is all building. We are are taking it slow and we are wanting to be careful and we are wanting to milk and extract as much as we can out of this. But realize this, this is building Verse 52 is related directly to verse 41. And verse 41 says, the Jews were grumbling. Now we get to verse 52 and the Jews are no longer grumbling because you remember grumbling is kind of that quiet, gossipy. We're not doing that anymore. (laughs) We're out in the open and we're having an argument with one another. Murray Harris, the, 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 the Greek scholar, defines it this way, violently arguing with one another the, the word communicates this is hostile raised voices sarcastic language it's caustic it's like sandpaper to human relations they're they're no longer grumbling they are out and out fighting it out verbally accosting one another Verbally accusing Jesus. It's an all-out fight now. Because of the truth which Jesus has spoken, it has scandalized them. The dispute is more than likely related to the immediate context of verse 51. It comes right before and it's the very same thing Jesus repeats throughout the rest of Our text this morning, it is talking about eating him and his flesh. One writer says this is this arguing, this fighting, this vitriol is further evidence of their unbelief. They don't believe Jesus. Happy to take from him, but not willing to believe him. How sad it is that that seems to be the default of human nature. You know, human nature, as long as Christ is not preaching the truths that he preached, and people only see that Jesus is the kind and gentle and giving and happy to meet all of our desires and felt needs, the world is okay with that. But again, they're not okay with the truth. And so one of the cardinal expressions of prohibition that has been given in the Old Testament that is part of the operating system in the minds of these Jewish people. It's just hardwired into them. They don't think about it. They don't have to remind themselves of it. It's just ingrained into them. This is what Jesus seizes upon and uses as the metaphor. He, he goes to the, some of the very heart of Jewish belief and practice. He says, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. If you don't, you have no life. No life. These are people who absolutely pride themselves on the fact that they, more than any others, have life. It's their God who spoke the world into existence. And on that, we all agree. They love to cherish the life. They are living their best life as conscientious Jews. But now Jesus goes and he digs into what they have long held as a central tenet of marking them as different from the nations around them. And we find it in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 14. God gives this commandment through Moses in the dietary law of the nation. For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Now that is absolutely imperative to get in relation to what Jesus is saying. Because what is it that Jesus will shed upon the cross? His blood. His blood is associated with his life. He gives life for life. Therefore, again, Leviticus 17, 14, I said to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. You will die. You will lose your status as belonging to the community of God in the Old Testament. If you eat blood... No blood pudding for you. I could be a Jew in that case. But they hear Jesus saying, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Wait a minute, Jesus. If you're from God, God has clearly said, you don't eat blood. You don't do it. Deuteronomy twelve sixteen. it's repeated in the second giving of the law. Only you shall not eat the blood. You are to pour it out on the ground like water. If you do have to eat something that once formerly had life to it, you drain the blood, then you eat it. Jesus doesn't make any qualifications. He doesn't bother to try to correct their misunderstandings. He's happy to just give them the truth that needs to be given in Let the chips fall where they may. He's not advocating as we know and as if they had listened carefully, they would know that he's not advocating for the literal eating of flesh and blood. But their rejection of him is such that they can't hear. So that's kind of mean to Jesus. Shouldn't he try harder to make them understand what he did? They were unwilling to hear. Jesus knows this. And so Jesus simply gives the truth again. And so this violation of the law, this violation of really the heart of what it means to be Jewish causes verbal fisticuffs. They are arguing vehemently and violently against one another. They hear a man advocating that they must become cannibals and eat him. And thus break their own law. They hear God commanding them to break the law he's given. How then can Jesus be God? And that's really the crux of this. They refuse to believe that he is God. And this is just another bullet in their revolver of why he cannot be the son of God. They're enraged. Now, I think that probably everybody in this room, because I know you, nobody in this room, I don't think, really enjoys conflict. I don't think so. I hope not. I know I don't. And you know in your relationship, if the people you love, you don't enjoy offending them. At least you shouldn't. Before the Spirit of God convicts you like, hey, what are you doing, jerk? Don't talk to her like that. But But as soon as we realize somebody has been offended and the temperature begins to rise, hopefully... We're all of the stripe that would say, okay, okay, I'm sorry. I, let me reword that. Men, we have to do that a lot, right? I didn't mean it that way. What I meant was, and we try to rephrase it. And so we, we, we might expect Jesus here to go, oh, they're really mad. Maybe we better try to smooth this over a little bit. Okay, guys, time out. So just forget what I said. Let me reword this for you. Let me me give you another analogy that perhaps will settle a little easier on your ears. Let me find common ground more palatable to your taste. And this, brothers and sisters, is exactly what Jesus does not do. And, And if you're here this morning and you're going, well, I don't know if I like Jesus anymore. That's sort of ugly. May I remind you, he's given the truth. He's given them the interpretive key to the metaphor. They're choosing not to use it. They're acting like unbelievers act. This is what makes anyone who will believe a miracle. Because we all do this. In our flesh, left to ourselves. I don't know. I'd still, I'm still puzzled. I don't know that I can get on board with the Jesus who does this. Well, let me give you another illustration of how Jesus does this. And again, the world likes them until they understand exactly what's going on many times. And those occur in the parables. Parables. The parables. Oh, we love all the good stories. And, and let's face it, that's how they're interpreted so many times in the world today. They're, they're, even in the church, they're just little moral good night stories. Just, oh, just clean up your act. Just do this. Just, you know, we, we moralize things because, as Michael Horton says, we're hardwired for law. We, we want to do something to earn our way into God's favor. And so we, we moralize these parables. That's not the purpose. In fact, Jesus tells us what the purpose for parables is, and it's found in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. And the disciples came to him and said to him, are you ready for this? Why do you speak to them in parables? Let's put it in plain West Texas parlance, shall we? What are you doing Why are you speaking in parables? Jesus answered them. Are you ready? Is Jesus the son of God? Yes. Is everything that Jesus says true? Yes. Is everything that Jesus says good? Yes. To you, Jesus says... It has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To you, it's been granted. But to them, it has not been granted. He gave the ability to understand to some, and to some he didn't. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while they see, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, don't you love how Jesus, even Jesus, perfect Jesus, God in the flesh, Depends upon the authority of Scripture. He's now going to quote Isaiah for us. You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull with their ears. They scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. And Jesus says, they've been given the truth. And rejected it. Therefore. To some I give to understand and believe. And to some I don't. That's the Jesus of scripture. That's not a gloss. That's not what scholars. Refer to as having kind of been thrown in there. And added later on. These are tried and tested true words. Spoken from the mouth of Jesus himself. Part of us wants to feel sorry for these Jewish people here in John 6 who are rejecting Jesus. And Jesus essentially says, what's to feel sorry for? They have all the law. They have all the prophets. They have all the poets. They have all the fathers. They have all the covenants. They have every reason to believe. And they won't. They've rejected Jesus now out of hand. And Jesus says, they have enough to believe and yet they won't. And they haven't, therefore I'm going to speak in such a way that those who would believe will and those who won't will be hardened in that. Jesus continues then with the metaphor he's been using. No reason to change horses midstream and midstride. He says, listen, if you want to live, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. No, we know, and Jesus has already talked about over and over again, this refers to belief, not actual eating and drinking. It is a metaphor for appropriating Jesus to our life by faith and by faith alone. say, well, faith alone. Yeah, because faith alone is the only thing we could employ that would not be a work. Because we know that faith itself, according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, is a gift. Everything else would be a work, even eating and drinking flesh and blood. If that were true physically, that would be a work we did. That's why we would plead with our Roman Catholic friends and neighbors. To abandon the mass. Because the mass is a work. And it is by grace we are saved through faith. And that is not of yourself. It is a gift of God so that you can't even boast in the faith. And so Jesus undercuts the legs of Works even here. And he refuses to change the metaphor. In verse 53, I want you to notice a difference here. In verse 53, Jesus, in order to make the point and to make it in such a way that it is fully orbed and includes everything. When Jesus speaks of eating in verse 53, he uses a Greek word that has to do with that's what you do every day. You just eat. It's a way of life. how you sustain yourself. Routine. But then when we get to verse 54, there is a different word that is used for our English word eat here. It's eat in English for both. But in the words of Jesus, it's two different words. One is the daily mundane ritual of eating. In 54, it is um, that type of eating for which we all have to train our kids at the table. It refers to a gnawing or chomping. Like a cow chewing the cud. It's loud. It's demonstrative. It is annoying. And Jesus says here, he who not only eats in a sustaining way, but eats like he's attacking his food. There's to be both a a sustained element to it and there's to be a passionate element. Pursuit of it. Now, we won't say which demographic in the room this morning that happens to be male between, I don't know, 12 and 18. Best exemplify this. But voracious eaters. That's what Jesus is referring to. An aggressive and constant eating. Loudly passionately pursuing the food. And so while the Jews are busy quarreling about the analogy Jesus has used, Jesus offers more in regard to the serious problem at hand in verses 53 and 54. Here's the sad part, folks. These people are so hung up on the metaphor. They're so hung up on the how-to That they miss the message. They completely miss what Jesus is trying to spare them from. In verse 53, look what he says. Unless, unless you do this, you have no life in yourself. You are dead men walking. And you're headed to an even greater death. How tragic is that? They're hung up on a metaphor. And Jesus is saying, can't you see? You're driving for the canyon at breakneck speed. You are already dead and you are going to be even more dead if you don't turn and believe. There is no life within you. You will not be raised up at the last day. There is no hope of resurrection for you. So that when you are buried, it really is goodbye for your loved ones. Not see you later, but goodbye forever. And you're worried about a metaphor. That's the least of your concerns. Focus on the problem. The problem is you. The problem is you're, you're without the life of God, which is the only life coursing in your veins. This has been the theme of verses 39, verse 40, and verse 44. That Jesus raises up on the last day. Because of the life that is in him and has been appropriated to us by faith alone. Jesus is saying, listen, you need to eat of that. You need to hunger for that life. Get over the metaphor. You need Christ and you need the life of Christ in you because you are dead. And and may I say to you, because I care for all of you. If you have not believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you too are dead and will die. A double death. So it's not only that Christ defends their physical sensibility and their religious dietary code, he now goes after the core of who they are. Might, the argument might be made that, that Jesus has just attacked a system up to this point. But when we get to verse 55 and verse 56, Jesus actually goes after them. And here's how he does it. He speaks the necessary truth against self-reliance. He goes straight to the pride He goes straight to their self-sufficiency He goes straight to self-righteousness He goes straight to their false piety He goes straight to their religious notions About themselves Look at verse 55 For my flesh is true food And my blood is true drink He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. What their fathers ate was false. What they have been doing is false. What they are hoping in is false. And it's only prolonging their death temporarily. Because they're going to die. Only Jesus is true. Whatever else you may say about the Jewish people, they are an incredibly proud and self-reliant people even to this day. They need nothing. They are everything. Look at the way they treated the Samaritans. Look at the way they treated others. They didn't care. They were superior in every possible way in their thinking. And Jesus now goes and He says to them, listen, um, you're nothing. What you practice is nothing. In fact, it's dead religion without faith. Faith in me, belief in the promises of God that have been fulfilled in me, you're, you're nothing. It means nothing. It's all empty. They, they, they believe, they can please they believe, They have the audacity to believe that they can please an absolutely perfect and holy God by their sham of a meritocracy. How much of a sham was it? Well, it had gotten worse by Jesus' day. It was bad in the Old Testament because it's human nature for all of us. And there's still people that, oh, you know, as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. How many of you have heard that when you shared the gospel with somebody? Well, as long as I'm better than I was bad... More times good than bad. Then then I think God will be. What a sham. To hold that up to a God of absolute and infinite perfection. And say good enough. Meh. What a sham. And these people are living that. He said Brian you're being awfully hard on these people. Well I would just invite you to, to remember what occurred A few verses back when they're literally asking Jesus, what works can we do? The assumption is we've kept all the law, all that that Moses wrote, we've done. All the the 700 plus laws that had been added to the Jewish code by the time Jesus comes along. In addition to the Old Testament, kept all that. What else you got for us, Jesus? We've mastered that. Give us something else to do arrogance. They so miserably failed already. James would cut across the grain a Jewish man writing to Jewish people saying, if you've offended the law in one point, you've offended the entire law. Now imagine that you are pulled over for speeding on the way home this afternoon and you go to court tomorrow down at the municipal court and they bring out The charge against you, and it's not a little flimsy piece of paper. It is reams of paper because you have violated every judicial code in the criminal code book. Guilty of all of them. I didn't murder anybody. I didn't steal. I didn't violate, you know, corporate antitrust. James says, you offended one point, you've, you're guilty as if you had offended in all. That's how great our sin is. And these people are asking for more. Like, yeah, we've mastered that. Give us something else we haven't done yet. And Jesus says, you don't get it. If you don't have me, you don't have anything. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my, my blood abides in me. You don't have any identity Outside of me. (gasps) Away with Jewishness. Away with your works. Because you know what Paul says? In Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. Bond or free. Rich or poor. Male or female. Young or old. You're either in Christ or you're not. And Jesus is now saying, lose your identity and be found in me. Because he who abides in me, I abide in him and he will live forever. What a cut across the grain for those who strove for such fastidious piety. And that danger is still present today. We tend to hang on to things, particularly religious things, and think that they are the things that grant and give eternal life. And they are not. In fact, the things we hang on to in our lives, hoping that they somehow merit some religious blessing of God, are often the very things that condemn us the most. Our pride. Oh, brothers and sisters. What we need to be reminded of. Is that we have imbibed. Of the alien perfection of Jesus Christ. And it isn't us. And we ought to be saying. Thank God it's no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me. The sooner And the more frequently Brian Fairchild dies to himself, that Christ be magnified and live in me and I in him, all the better for me, all the better for you. They need a total imbibing, a total assimilation of the alien perfection and glories of Jesus Christ. We must have Christ or we die. It must be His life coursing through us, not ours. We don't need reform. We don't need something added to us. We need a total takeover, alien to ourselves. We can only live if something completely other than us covers us and characterizes us. Before the Father. Nothing can stand before the Father that does not bear the equal reflection of the Father. In his righteousness, in his perfection, in his eternality, all that God is. The perfect life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, must characterize us. Jesus makes it clear, or we die. We need everything from outside of ourselves. Nothing from inside of ourselves. Again, Murray, Her- Murray Harris is the one whose phrase I borrow, spiritual appropriation of Christ to them. And to them, that is incomprehensible. What do you mean I need somebody else? They're spiritual toddlers on the floor, throwing the fit, pounding the ground with their fists, saying, I do it myself. And Jesus says, then you will die. If you don't come to me in faith. Self righteousness is a lie, brothers and sisters. Self righteousness is a lie. There is no such thing. Self righteousness is as true as Bigfoot. Or the Loch Ness Monster. You won't find it. To put self and righteousness in the same sentence is an oxymoron of the highest degree. The greatest contradiction. It is a mirage of sin radiating off the dry sands of pride that will kill you in the middle of a desert. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by what? Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's what Jesus is calling them to. It's what Jesus will uh, go into greater detail on in John chapter 15 with the metaphor of the vine and the branch. Abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us. Now, here's the paradox. Perhaps you've already seen it and I'm just a little late to the party. But here is the paradox. Christ is telling them to eat, to partake of me. And so we would expect naturally to be, well, if I ate Christ, then that would mean Christ is in me. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? He says that you also abide in me. Now, how is it that we eat something and yet abide in that? Shouldn't it only abide in us? But Jesus flips it on its head and he says it's both. It's, it's I abide in you and you're abiding me. Well, how does that happen if we just ate and destroyed it? It's one of those paradoxes of the Christian life. Paul in Galatians 2.20 I live but it's not I but it's Christ in me nevertheless I do live sounds like Romans 7 the good that I want to do I don't and the things I don't want to do that's what I do it's that paradoxical part of the Christian life oh to abide in Jesus and this is again part of the key that tells us Jesus isn't talking about physically eating him right I'd love to have a big steak tonight and if I do which I won't but if I did I won't be abiding in that steak come on that's silly and that steak won't long abide in me it'll be burned up right used up just like the manna with the fathers in the wilderness and they died And it's at this moment we realize that there is an eternal message being preached. The offer of salvation in Christ. And now there becomes a a view of the Trinity that's in sharp relief. Verse 57, we find that Jesus now speaks truths that are necessary of a promise. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the living uh, because of the Father, so he who eats of me, he also will live because of me. He's building on his words from chapter 5 and verse 26, just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Do you see that? Do you see that? Do you do you, do you see Jesus is Showing you preemptively how you can be related to the Father. And if you're related to the Father, like Jesus is, you have the life of God in you. It's amazing and it is a miracle. Have you ever been asked the question? Sure you have. How you're related to someone. Now, how are you related to... So and so. And why does that matter? Now, listen, here in America, we don't have an aristocracy. We don't have uh, a monarchy. And so we're sort of all mutts. It doesn't really matter, ultimately, because we have no claim to anything based on who we're related to, like other countries, other cultures. But to be asked, are you related to the Father? How are you related to the father? How is it? You look like him. You live like him. You have his life coursing through you. It makes you look and live differently. How is it that you come to be related to the father? Jesus says it's easy. You've appropriated me. You have been united to me By faith. And now my life is in you. And the Father is the one who gave me life. Therefore, ergo, the life of the Father, it's in you too. God, who eternally exists, who is life in himself, because he existed before life as we knew it, all life comes from him. God depends on nothing. Boy, that's a a truth we need to recapture in the church today. God depends on nothing. Not people's response to him, not circumstances, not permission. God needs nothing. He depends on nothing. And out of God himself, from God himself, not in terms of creating him, but in terms of defining him, which is really what the term beget is, Communicates. It's not I birth something. It is rather that I define something. The Son comes. Portraying all the life that is in the Father to us. And we are offered this entrance into that life. We are offered entrance into that life, the life of God that depends on nothing, can be stopped by nothing, that always has been and always will be. We are offered that life. Life without end. Life without strings. Life. You come to Jesus and believe Jesus. It's not that you won't die. Listen to me. It's that you can't die. You cannot die in Jesus. Because Jesus cannot die. The Father cannot die. From whom the Son proceeds is eternally begotten and generated. Defined by the life of the Father. That's now in you if you believe. You can't die. Now tell me, should Christians be the most confident and hopeful people In the history of the world or not? Absolutely. Why? You can't kill me. You can't hurt me. You can only change my address. That's it. And the one you'll send me to is better than the one I've got now. The story of the Christian life. Somebody ought to write a book entitled this called Your Worst Life Now. Because this is as bad as it gets for us. We're going on to greater things. We can't die. And our inheritance in Christ awaits us. Now notice Jesus' closing argument and then we'll be finished. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not like, not as the fathers ate and died Oh, no, he who eats this bread, meaning me, by faith, will live forever. What a promise. What a promise. Eat anything else, you die. No other facts are needed here. No other metaphors are needed. No other condescension to the cultural expectations is needed. There's no need to prove anything. Will prove it, Jesus. I don't have to. I don't have to. You, you have the testimony of all the prophets in the law. You've got enough evidence. Evidence isn't the issue. You know, I just did another miracle, and it, it, actually, come to think of it, we've done f- several in the last twenty-four hours. Still don't believe. You don't need more information. You need a new heart. You need a new heart. You can't get that by working for it. You can't get that by buying that. The Father gives the new heart by the Spirit. And you'll know that you have the new heart when you believe. You know the truth. You'll believe the truth and you'll be set free by the truth. So surrender to the Son and all that He teaches. All that he has said, and you will live forever. Let me ask you a question. Will you do that? Will you do that? I can't do it for you. The person next to you cannot do it for you. The church collectively cannot do that for you. We can't pray you into this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Period. Full stop. Glorious truth. Now, as we close our Bibles and we prepare our hearts to take of the Lord's table, there is one final detail that I want you to see. And it is not extraneous to the backdrop. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Jesus, compassionate and courageous, stands in the very seat that taught the very opposite of what he's teaching now and declares this truth. He doesn't go to a friendly audience. <laughs> he doesn't send out a survey in the mail and say, no, where do the people like me? I'll go there and tell them this hard truth. Jesus goes to where the truth is wanted the least. And he lays it bare. He's speaking to religious people, not pagans. He is delivering it authoritatively as God in human flesh. God of very gods. Truly God, truly man. As Edward Clink says, this synagogue on this day... It was not the Jews who came to speak to God. It was God who came to speak to them. They thought they came to offer their words to God. No, no, no. God came and He gave His life-giving words to them. So, in this church, on this day, God has spoken from His Word. He has spoken clearly through His Son, we may not argue. You must either believe or reject. Period. Which will you do? Let's pray. Father, your words are life. Jeremiah says your words were found and I did eat them. They became the joy and the rejoicing of my heart, sweeter than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. So God, by your spirit, by your gracious gift, cause us to hear and to believe or to use your words, eat. And find in our soul the great peace and rejoicing that comes from being filled with a life that is from you. Through your son. Oh God what a gracious God you are. To speak so clearly to us. So boldly to us. It will be like Peter in just a few weeks. Lord where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So, God, fill us with those words. Cause us to believe. Cause us now to celebrate as we hold in our hands bread that represents the sinless life of Jesus Christ. The cup that represents the the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for us that our sins might be covered By your perfect life and death, your righteousness before your Father, we have you to plead. Father, I pray that if there is one here this morning who has not placed their faith in Christ alone, they're still holding on to something else, that today would be the day that you break them cause them to acknowledge their sin and their futile efforts before you and cast themselves wholly upon the life of Jesus Christ to be their life. And when our last day is ended, as the hymn writer has said, let the blood of Jesus, let the life of Jesus speak for me. And speak for all of us. We ask this all in the name of Jesus our Savior.